Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it, and we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edges of what it means to connect, otherwise nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, and I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work of reconnecting the world. While these discussions will guide you into the connectfulness practice, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. You can learn more about my connectfulness counseling practice and online workshops at connectfulness.com. Welcome back. It's good to be here with you again for season three of the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed your summer. And today we're joined by the authors of the new book, Baby Bomb, a relationship survival guide for new parents, Kara Hoppy and Stan Tatkin. You may recall that Stan joined us for season one. In episode number six, Why Are Relationships Difficult? We're so glad to have Stan join us again today. Stan Tatkin is a clinician, a teacher, and the developer of the Psychobiological Approach to Couples Therapy, also known as PACT. He has a clinical practice in California, where he has specialized for the last 20 years in working with couples and individuals who wish to be in relationship. Stan and his wife, Tracy, developed the PACT Institute for the purpose of training other psychotherapists to use this method in their clinical work. And Kara Hoppe is a psychotherapist, teacher, feminist, and mother. She spent more than a decade as an inclusive therapist working with individuals and couples towards healing and growing, becoming grounded, integrated people with better access to their own instincts, wisdom, and creativity. She offers virtual retreats for parents and expectant couples based on the book Baby Bomb. She lives with her husband and their son in Pioneer Town, California, and sees clients in private practice via telehealth. Any parent will tell you that having a baby is a life-altering event. It will change everything about you. It will exhaust you, it will overwhelm you, and it will make it so that your romantic relationship with your partner is put on the back burner. More and more though, research is showing that in order to be the best parents that we can be, we also need to prioritize and meet the needs of our relationships as a couple. And that's what this book, Baby Bomb, is all about. So dive in with Dr. Stan Tatkin, Kara Hoppe, and myself as we explore exactly that and talk about how you can bring more secure functioning to your relationship, which will help you in turn raise happy, healthy kids. Dive in with us. So I'm really excited to be here with both of you today, Dr. Stan Tatkin and Kara Hoppe. Welcome. And uh, I'm so excited for this new book that you've just released, Baby Bomb, a Relationship Survival Guide for New Parents. Can you uh, both just kind of jump in and tell us a little bit about this collaboration of yours? Sure. Um, thanks for having us. It's really nice to be here as well. Um, Dan and I have known each other for about a decade. 
um, I started working for the PACT Institute about a decade ago. And um, the PACT Institute is Stan's institute where he trains clinicians on his approach to couple therapy. Um, so we've been colleagues and friends for a long time before I was, before my baby bomb hit. Um, <laughs> and then, and I've been trained in his institute, a huge fan. He's been, made a huge impact on my work, um, with couples and then also on my relationship with my husband. Yeah. So, so it was inevitable when Charlie and I, my husband and I had our son Jude and we were in the throes of the early parenthood partnering and parenting jam and really experiencing the intensity of it and the difficulty of it and the crisis parts of it, along with the joy and the gratitude and the appreciation and all of, all of the bomb, you know, aspects of it, um, that I would approach Stan and say, this is, this is real. This is, this is a thing. Managing part. It's so real. And I, I didn't have the lived experience of it until I did. And I said to Stan, we should, we should write a book about this and help people. And luckily he was gay. Awesome. And I really believe that it was important for couples to prepare for their first child or their second child or their third child, because I had so many people who uh, weren't prepared at all. And I thought, this is important. This is important to help couples remain a couple from the very beginning and to predict and plan and prepare for the first child, which yeah. is stressful. And, you know, there, there's so many books out there on parenting and on bringing home a you know, new baby and all that, but there's not very many. I know of like a, some, just a few books that are really written for the couple and how they're going to survive mm-hmm. bringing home and growing their family. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this, this is, um, it's, it's so important and it, it really is a, a very necessary conversation to be having. Yeah, that, uh-huh. that was, that was my experience too, as a new parent, once Charlie and I were struggling, we were having a hard time finding, connecting again, yeah. and staying a couple amongst both of us being very preoccupied with learning how to be parents. So as a couple therapist, I went to the literature, I was like, I need, you know, help. And I wasn't, I, what I was, I found a lot of helpful things, but I didn't find anything that was inclusive to both partners Mm -hmm. and speaking, not just to women, but to, for hetero, hetero partnerships to both partners. So they can both be included in coming together and investing in their relationship. And so I saw, um, I mean, like I said, I think it, it, writing in baby bomb, like this is the book Charlie and I needed. Yeah. We needed a book that spoke to both of us and helped us, like Stan said, with the preparation, but also like in, you can do a lot of preparation, but nothing can really prepare you for what it's like to be a parent um, when you're in it. And so it's also about doing some um, triage as well for couples that are that are in it and needing help, um, being like, wow, this isn't working. Let's figure out what, how we can make it work. Yeah. There's, you know, you, you just mentioned being preoccupied, Kara, and I think that's such a big thing. And you talk about this some in baby bomb, where you're talking about how, even when you're pregnant, even when you're expecting the focus is not on your couplehood. It's not on your partnership. The focus is on this, this little one that's going to be coming into the world. Right. That preoccupation is such a big piece because that's one of the things I, I kept kind of seeing you talk about. And I love the way you put this. You said perfect partnerships don't exist, right? And so it's that piece about how do we refocus so that we as a couple are on the same page. Right. And that's so much about what you talk of in this in this book is how do you get the, the partners on the same page? Right. Yeah, and that's the dance, right, Stan? Yes, and and I I did think of one thing that does prepare partners a little bit, and that is uh, partners that start off with pets, yeah. particularly dogs. Yeah, because dogs are forever toddlers, and so I I've they need I've boundaries. Met, <laughs> yes, I've met many mm-hmm. a couple right that that starts off with their dogs. 
and uh, and they're they're conscious of this, uh, and that doesn't exactly prepare them for the for the baby, not precisely, but uh, it gets it gets closer. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think then, that's a wonderful comes, observation. Then then comes cats, and then sea monkeys, and then chia pets. I wish this was a video podcast and everyone can see the beautiful hat you wore for a little while before. Just for a little while. Because the humor is just so apparent here. (laughs) And I think that that's a piece of this, right? Because the humor is a form of co-regulation. It's a way that we we help each other's nervous systems to just settle. Well, that's that's important because uh, uh, secure functioning couples tend to retain their humor and they use their humor as a co-regulatory function. Couples that are insecure functioning often lack a sense of humor and, uh, and that makes the system much more brittle. Mm-hmm. And so uh, part of the reason we emphasize secure functioning and we emphasize that the couple uh, learn to be really good with each other under pressure, under stress, under you know, uh, load uh, from the outside and from the inside uh, so that they can retain their their flexibility, their humor, uh, because it's going to require a lot of humor <laughs> to raise a baby, raise a child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think what you're saying also about like couples that are practicing insecure functioning, they are so preoccupied with trying to get their sense of security and their needs met. And like, they just don't have any space for play or humor. It's constantly like looking out and assessing for danger and being vigilant. And so when their partner can make a joke, it's always falling flat. It's like, that's not funny. You know, it's just throwing it back. Like there isn't that sense of the co-regulation or experience of the co-regulation, right? Yes, and we should probably establish that all human beings, like all mammals, um, but human primates in particular, have an acute sense of threat detection. And because Mm -hmm. we're very good at at, uh, predicting and thinking ahead, uh, we use often these senses to predict danger. Well, that's very good out in the open and out in the field, it's not so good in love relationships because right. uh, we're constantly sweeping uh, for any kind of threat cue and couples are ripe for providing those threat cues for each other because of the nature of an attachment relationship, a primary attachment relationship, but also because of memory. Um, you know, we're memory animals and it's very easy for us to misunderstand each other, to make errors of communication and memory and perception. And so this is why uh, I think the romantic, adult romantic attachment relationship is one of the hardest relationships on the planet. And also yes. one of the spaces that has the most potential for healing. Mm-hmm. Most potential for healing and for harming. Um, nature yes. has uh, does not care. Um, people talk about uh, adaptability. Uh, we're uh, adaptive animals. Uh, talk about neuroplasticity. That's always uh, uh, the case. But nature doesn't care which way which way the wind blows. And so w- we are much more set up, I think, for war than for love. I can mm-hmm. I can argue that. And that's why we're trying to educate people on how to override uh, human systems that make us want to shoot first and ask questions later. Right. And, and while we stay safe, we think, um, we also create uh, great problems for us, ourselves. And that takes some wisdom and some knowledge education. And that's what we hope to provide. I have a, a- a personal story that a, a tiny little vignette of a personal story that might help to illustrate a little bit of what we're talking about. And that's, I, I had this tendency throughout many years in my relationship with my spouse to react whenever he would bite his bottom lip with what's the matter. And yeah. finally, one day I paused, I was learning a lot about kind of that self-regulation piece of the work. And I paused and I sat with myself and I took a look over at him and he was doing a crossword puzzle. It, right. The biting his lip had nothing at all to do with me. No. Right. Yeah. Could have been gas. It could have been. In that case, I don't think it was, but still the point, my point is just that 
my reaction, what I, what I learned really strongly from that particular exchange between us was that my reaction and a history of many reactions and the dance that we would get into around those reactions were often old, old stories, old things that I, my system knew, but that weren't actually things that were happening in that moment. That's right. And, and it could also be, too, that that's a remnant from even before you met uh, that that your vigilance yeah. is paying attention, you know, even people who are paying a special attention to the lower part of the face, the mouth, some people pay a special attention to the upper part of the face. Some people pay a special attention to uh, gross movements of the neck and the head or the arms and the legs. And so, you know, we're, we're uh, in amazing animals in our uh, acuity at being able to pick up environmental cues of all kinds in, in, at lightning speeds. But we're not that good at, uh, at, at error correcting if we are feeling threatened. Uh, if we're feeling threatened, error correcting areas of the brain actually are not operating because they don't have the time. Time is a crucial factor. And so people will automatically interpret the, what they see here uh, and uh, feel uh, and, and go, oh, I know this, I recognize this, and this is either good or bad. Yeah. And that's just, that's just the human condition. There's nothing and that happens so fast. That. It happens. Within, so fast. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I picked up through reading baby bomb, Kara and Stan is Kara, you were talking a lot about kind of getting to know these tells, getting to know these cues. What is it that I tend to do? What is it that my partner tends to do? And so the, the knowing of this becomes a foundation for how you begin to work with it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. How you begin to truly understand, begin to understand yourself. I mean, of course, there'll always be mystery and more to know, but, you know, beginning to understand yourself and beginning to understand your partner. And much like the example that you shared, Rebecca, not taking it personally. Right. And not like either going into like, this is something I have to, like, I, I hear in the story that you said about like, seeing your spouse bite his lip, almost like it activates in you. I need to help him. What's wrong? Yeah. You know, like I'm going to come towards you. Um, and, and that's my impulse. And yeah, there so, you go. There's my attachment style. We can take a whole, we can blow that up. <laughs> right. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm raising, I can relate, you know, like the scanning of the what's happening here. Mm -hmm. What gaps do I need to fill in, you know, um, yeah. you know, et cetera. But yes, we wrote about, we introduced in the book, the attachment theory to help people get like an orientation about attachment. And then right. the next chapter was on becoming experts where we brought in the tells and the nervous system and right. getting to know each other, the animals that they are and who they're with and how they can best care for themselves and each other. And I think that's such an important piece to do. Can we back up at this point in our conversation and go back and talk a little bit about the attachment theory? Because I think that's such an important piece and I don't want to glaze over it for folks. Um, but there's there's a few different pieces here. I know the two of you have different languages that you use. Carrie, you use these colors and Stan, you use the island and the wave and the anchor, I think it is. is am I mm -hmm. getting that? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um then, you know, there's other language that's just out there in literature. So I'm wondering if if both of you would maybe just jump in with a very brief um, overview. The literature actually is research literature, starting with Mary Ainsworth, who termed uh, insecures as anxious avoidant or mm -hmm. anxious ambivalent. And people make the mistake today by referring to one side as anxious and the other side as avoidant. However, both sides by definition are anxious because they're insecure. So we have anxiety over a, a feeling that our primary attachment relationship or relationships uh, are not uh, supporting either clinging or distancing. My, my autonomy and my wish to stray from the, uh, the mother figure, the primary, uh, without consequence, negative consequence, and my ability to cling and run back and, and be dependent on that caregiver without consequence. And so 
we have a, an adaptation to an, uh, a cultural style, a cultural, really a lineage of how relationships go. And that is, that is uh, 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 conveyed through thousands and thousands of interactions from infancy on, on, on through early childhood. And that forms a, uh, an, a, what uh, Bowlby called an internal working model of how relationships work, how I move toward in a way those who, upon whom I depend. Would it be safe to say that this is also a part of kind of like the internal knowing of am I safe or am I not safe in the world? Well, it is absolutely about whether I am safe or unsafe in the world because my world is my primary attachment relationship. And that is my world. And so children, let's say, who are neglected on an attachment level, not a material level, on an attachment level where the family does not uh, value attachment features such as skin-to-skin, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, close proximity, interaction, play for long extended periods with a caregiver who is fully resourced, attentive, fully present, and curious about finding the baby's mind. Those conditions have to be there. And anything other than that uh, will cause the baby, we don't know because we're not in the baby's head, but we see behaviorally the baby to make adjustments according to its own sense of safety and security. And we'll see behavioral adaptations that the baby will make. This is how we can study babies and understand that this is normative this is not personality. This is just the baby's way of, of doing what is expected in the family. It's a culture. Right. So we, yeah. there are other fancy terms people will hear. There's, uh, there's preoccupied. Uh, there's angry resistant for the clinging side. There's avoidant and, uh, and dismissive and derogating of attachment values on the distancing side. There are all sorts of uh, research terms because everyone who studies babies sees something a little different. It's the same animal, the same reaction, but uh, every time we we look more deeply, we see more, finer and finer nuances, and that gives rise to more descriptive terms. Now, when we went to Island Anchor Wave, we wanted to make it uh, easy for people to not use it in a pejorative sense. So we picked this nautical model, and that would be, uh, you know, something that maybe people could identify with without mythologizing themselves or their partner. Kara went further and used what is called the uh, the AAI or the Adult Attachment Interview colors that we use for coding babies and for coding adults, and uh, that is what I have used. Kara wanted to use the colors to even. Uh, uh, emphasize more the idea of a continuum rather than people just pigeonholing themselves or their partners and then see themselves basically on a continuum, which I think is actually much more helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wanted to, I, yeah, I, we wanted to take, yeah, the concept and take it further and to also instill hope in partners yeah that if you're identifying as red or that would be wave and wired for love or we do or anxious ambivalent in a relationship or in a work situation or in a life situation that you are, you're, you can move, you know, and in the continuum in the book, it's black and white, but how we had it made, it's in this gorgeous color, like a color wheel. So you can move from red to orange you know, like you would around the color wheel showing that there's, there's hope for change. You and your partner may start being blue or red and you can, by by meeting those sense of security needs and establishing that sense of trust and love and belonging, you can move each other or yourselves to yellow. And that's a big piece of it because first you have to understand where do I tend to fall? Yes. Where does my partner tend to fall? And yes. then what is the need underneath that? Right. Right. When right. you're talking about partnerships, when we, because these attachment theories started by looking at 
babies and, and infant parent dyads. And then we moved into talking about the adult attachment stuff. And now we're talking about how are we using it in partnerships? So to kind of extrapolate all that, there's a piece of this that begins with a lot of reflection, mm-hmm. right? And from that reflection point, it becomes something that you can put into some kind of skill-based practice. And that is I think a really interesting piece for us to talk about because it's those practices that start moving us into, I think, more security. Am I right about that? Definitely. Yeah. It, it's and also the the um, what I need as a wave or as uh, an island uh, or somebody who's in the red or in the blue is is more is driven by fear. It's mm-hmm. not that I'm I'm seeking something. Uh, well, I am. I'm seeking safety and security. Mm-hmm. And the way I'm seeking safety and security is the manner in which I protected myself when I was little. However, that same way of protecting myself from what I fear most is interpreted in the adult world as threatening. And so, uh, so we, we have uh, we have a memory system of what it is like to depend on somebody and a set of fears that are known and predictable based on development that uh, that create defenses that are insecure functioning in a relationship. In other words, they're too unfair, too insensitive too much of the time and focused on the self rather than the relationship. And that is that is an impediment to secure functioning. So I have to know what I'm afraid of. I have to know that I defend myself reflexively in this way. And I have to know that the way I defend myself is not safe for another person. And then I have to sort of uh, take responsibility for it. But as a partner, I have to also know your fears. This would be the case no matter what, depending on, you know, know, everyone has a history. And I'd have to understand your fears and understand how you protect yourself and handle you in a way that doesn't amplify your fears and increase your defense. Otherwise, I'm not safe. So a lot of this is really is really is understanding of not just how I work, but how you work. Mm-hmm. How I work, how you work, how we work. How we mm-hmm. work. Yeah. How we, Ultimately. How we, yeah. And how, how, we work. How, how we work is uh, is quite different. How we work is how we've decided our culture our new culture shall be, uh, how we're going to run things, how we're going to comport ourselves for the benefit of each other and for the relationship that that contains us. So that is a conscious decision and effort to make this culture not like the one I grew up in, but the one that is brand new, co-created, co-constructed by each other. But then we have to watch ourselves to make sure that we keep each other safe and secure. So there's there's uh, more than the other thing going on. We're creating something brand new that benefits and protects us both. Mm. Right. And so when you're talking about culture, you're talking about this this family system, this this unit. Correct. Yeah. Right. I like to think about it in in the book, but then also my clinical work is the first family culture mm-hmm. that both partner ha- have, um, and then their and then their second family, the one they're creating. And I think like a lot of the work that we do, um, I could speak for myself, but I learned this from Stan, so I feel like I can say we do um, that we do as clinicians is offer our clients, and then of course uh, the readers in Baby Bomb a new paradigm. Like they, you know, we inherited these different cultures from our first family. And unless we learn that there's another way to do it, we don't know there's another way to do it. We're just repeating these patterns unconsciously, like with each other, without an awareness about it. And, and what I thought was so great knowing Stan for the past 10 years, it like serendipitously, I met Stan and started working with him right before I got married. And so it was literally like I had this like life experience where learning about secure functioning from Stan and then sharing it with Charlie, my husband, it was just like my mind was blown. Like I was like, I knew intuitively I did not want to do what my first family did. And Charlie knew that too. 
but we didn't know another way to do it. And that's where Stan, like his work came in for us as a couple where I was like, Charlie, there is another way we can do this. I'm learning about it. Like, this is so exciting. And he was like, yeah, like, let's do this. Let's, let's create something different. And then like, there was like, the whole idea of secure functioning is really providing couples, me and Charlie, but the couples in my practice, and then the readers of baby bomb, like guideposts of this is, this is another way to consider this. This is a new paradigm to be in relationship with each other. If you guys want to do something different. And they, and they do it. Um, uh, Kara uh, and Charlie are uh, the, the very, uh, uh, example of secure functioning. They practice it. Uh, Tracy and I practice it. Uh, and I, I think that is the, the way to go with a union that expects to last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So let me ask this question then. The first culture, the first family that you grow up in isn't necessarily secure, right? It might be. Like might if be. you're, if you're, um, Kara, in a secure relationship, if you're practicing the security, your child is going to grow up inside of that, right? Yeah. And so there's there's this kind of legacy work that's encompassed in this, right? Because yeah. now you're raising a, a human in a more secure functioning. They're not going to have as mer- much work to do to figure out what security feels and looks like. It's going to yeah. be kind of more known to them in a way yeah. that maybe it wasn't known to you and your partner. Um, so I know for myself, an example, I grew up without that type of security. There was a lot of other stuff. I had to really work and claw my way through to try to figure out what does security look like? How do I do that healing for myself? How do I bring it to my relationship? How do I bring it to my family? Right. And all of it layers upon each other. But so where do you start with somebody who is really coming to this work? Like, I need this. I need what you're talking about right now. And I don't, I don't have a model for security. Like I don't get, I mean, the book is, it, it lays it out. It helps you see what security looks like. And it gives plenty of case examples. And it talks about the top type of conversations you can be having with your partner that are really helpful. And some of it might just feel for some people so foreign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, that foreignness. It is foreign because we're, we're animals that are energy conserved. And what Kara said that we don't know that we're doing exactly what we know and what we know is what we have experienced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we do that particularly when we're under any modicum of stress. We're going to always fall back on our earliest uh, plan or earliest culture. And that is the baby uh, bomb. Hence the baby mom. And, and so we might think of, of that first family or the parents as the originals, right? Mm-hmm. The originals. Uh, now, their family, they, they have originals as well, because a lot of this yeah. is handed down. And, it's, and it's, it's, not, it's not pernicious. It is simply nature repeating itself, which it does in all things in biology. So since we're part of nature and since we're energy conserved, meaning we do the least amount necessary, very few people ever try to think about, uh, about you know, are they marching to their own drummer or are they marching to somebody else's like their parents or their grandparents? Uh, uh, very few people want to think about that because there's too many other things to think about. Only when we're in, a, in an enriched environment where we're interested, even then, uh, we don't want to do very much. What forces us is suffering. Mm-hmm. And when partners are suffering in their relationship and they want to stick together because the, the attachment system is, is a biological mandate that says, I can't quit you, even though I should, um, that, that biological mandate often forces us to move up a level in complexity and wisdom. And then now we have reason to explore ourselves and to think more deeply about why we are suffering because we can't quit each other, but we can't live with each other. (laughs) So if I'm, if I'm extrapolating a little bit from what you're saying there, Stan, it sounds to me like suffering is suffering is almost like this gift that brings us towards growth. Sadly it is. Yeah. Sadly, it is. Uh, those of us who suffer 
you know, learn uh, compassion, uh, learn that we're not mm-hmm. the only people. We start to see that uh, all human beings are suffering in the same way. We're not that special. But that we do have a responsibility to move towards complexity and to move towards uh, uh, to move the bar up and to become better people, uh, you know, uh, with better character. And secure functioning is is basically two individuals acting as adults, uh, setting the bar as high as they wish and getting each other to do the right thing always when the right thing is the hardest thing to do. And that builds character and discipline. Now we know that systems like the military or paramilitary organizations where people have to band together and their lives depend on each other, the weakest link could take care, uh, could uh, jeopardize a great many people. Um, That's inculcated into into the culture. You're not important. The person next to you is more important than you because they're going to save your life. Uh, That is a focus on interdependency. We are interdependent. And those relationships, because they they rely on on each other for life, become extremely close. and, uh, And these people get along very well because they have a reason to not worry about the small stuff. They have bigger fish to fry. In couples, we don't have that. In couples, we have all sorts of reasons why people pair bond, none of it having to do with shared purpose, none of it having to do with shared meaning, and none of it having to do with shared vision and a plan for how we're going to do this together without harming each other. Mm -hmm. Mm. That last bit there in particular, without harming each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's also like what you were saying, Stan, about like in these stressful moments about like having the courage to do the right thing, even though the right thing is probably like the scariest thing to do. You know, it could be as simple as like asking for help, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, and just and and being very open hearted and honest about I'm not okay can you help me like that in in a in a family culture where that wasn't encouraged it was dismissed or shut down or ignored or pathologized etc be occupying that space and saying i need help it can be like it's the right thing for the couple but it can feel in the body terrifying so how do how do we help couples like, you know, and like ha- have the, the terror, the fear and, and embody the courage to say, you know, I need this from you for us, for the better of us. I need help or, you know, do that right thing. Um, That's, I think, where uh, where we ch- we're trying to shift people's culture to being purpose centered and not. Yeah. Feeling- Centered. Purpose-centered is something that we both can agree on. We can achieve regardless of how we feel. But if we are feeling centered, then it's the Wild West. Then it's chaos. Mm-hmm. Then it's everyone for themselves. I'll do it if I feel like it. If I don't feel like it, I'll do what I want. And that's, the again, the human condition. We, we need to focus on shared purpose. We do this because we can, because we both agree it's the best thing to do. And we do it regardless of how we feel because it has to get done. All right. So, so where do you place feelings then? Because I understand where purpose goes then. I understand that there's this shared purpose, this shared meaning, this new culture that you're co-creating. And that to me sounds a little bit heady, right? Like it's, a, it's cognitive. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a meta conversation that we're going to have with each other. We're going to sit down when we're kind of in a calm place and we're going to come up with the shared purpose, the shared meaning. And then my feelings come in or your feelings come in or somebody's feelings come in and they shift us around. Like when I'm a new mom and I've been parenting all day and I'm just feeling completely touched out and that, you know, like, and the feelings are there. And so how do you work with that part? What do you do with that part that comes up? Well, I don't go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I don't know. I was thinking when you said, Rebecca, about how it's cognitive, 
I don't know. I have a different feeling about it. To me, it actually feels, and I have my hand and my heart, very heart centered because it feels like when I make these agreements with Charlie, um, and I like, and I help facilitate couples making these agreements in my clinical work, it is like they're connecting to something bigger than that. Mm -hmm. I want to do this. I want to show for us, even when I don't, when I don't want to, my feelings are like, I'm tired or whatever, because I want to offer a different culture to our son. Totally. That like that feels in my body, something I can practice holding on to that when I'm having sticky conversations. So it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, for me, it's a North star that helps me reorient myself in my feelings where I'm not dismissing of my own feelings of being fatigued or overwhelmed or anxious or whatever, you know, they like Stan keeps saying like the human condition, but I can hold both at the same time. I can hold, I'm tired. I'm upset with you. And in my heart, I can jet and in my gut actually like right now saying it to, to you guys. And I want to get through this conversation on the right side with you, Mm. not, not by myself. I want to do this with you. And that actually does feel, I don't know, Stan, if you experience it this way, but it actually Mm -hmm. does engage my body. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that as you're saying it, Kara. Okay. Here's an example for my life. The other night I was angry with Tracy and uh, I was so angry. I felt all the feelings of wanting to punish her. I felt all the feelings of of wanting to stay angry with her to get it across that what I was angry about was legitimate. And uh, she went to sleep without us resolving it. And as she went to sleep, I was sitting there and I was thinking how much I wanted to punish her. And I started to realize, first of all, we have an agreement that we don't go very long at all without signaling to each other that despite being angry, we are okay, because we know that that uh, is an existential fear that we do not want to uh, experience for very long. So I'm sitting there and realizing I'm suffering. As I'm doing this, I'm suffering. Uh, And also we have an agreement. So I reach over and I grab her hand. She's still awake enough to grab my hand. And this is a signal to both of us, we're okay. We're good. Uh, It's not that I'm not angry, but we're good. I immediately feel a relief. I immediately feel uh, that I'm restored back to safety and back to a feeling of security. I would not have done that years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when we talk about setting up principles that have purpose, that protect us from each other and ourselves, We end up doing the right thing sooner than later, even though we don't feel like it. And that is what gives rise to a better human being and to character and also to the, to reduced suffering. So that's an example of there's a purpose that has to be fulfilled. And the feeling that comes from meeting that purpose uh, is going to follow and it's going to be better than the one than I would feel if I did what was driving me to uh, show my anger, act out, punish, and so on. Does it make sense? Very much. Yeah. So, so sweet. So the, so the principle protects, principles protect us from, from suffering, but principles also allow for the, the amplification, the, the budding of, of earned love earned love and respect and trust. And that's what we're after. Not the kind of love that just comes and goes, but the kind that we can't forget because I can feel it every day. I can feel Tracy doing things for me that are above and beyond, even when she doesn't feel like it, even if she's upset with me, I do the same for her. We trust each other uh, uh, increasingly through life and we fall in love with each other in a more in-depth way as we move through time. And that's because of how we set things up. Right. right. So, so that earned love, that earned trust, that's like a form of earned security. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's a, that's a research term specific to Mary Main. But yes, it's earned security 
or secure functioning. Secure functioning is, is a set of behaviors that are consistent with secure attachment. Therefore, we're creating a milieu that releases resources that are used otherwise for threat protection that are now available for development to move forward. Mm-hmm. Stan, is it okay if I go back to the example you shared and pull out one particular piece of something you said in there? Sure. When you reached out and grabbed Tracy's hand, you said something about how that shifted how you felt inside, how it changed. Yeah. And I I think that that's a key piece of this work, right? Is to figure out, it's not just about decreasing our partner's suffering all the time, which is certainly important, but it's also about how do I step out of the suffering that I'm inside of? How, what, what do I need? What can I do that would decrease my suffering and our suffering? And that's something that I think you really just beautifully illustrated. Well, this is where there's a misunderstanding. We don't do anything well by ourselves. We certainly don't uh, repair past injuries by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we certainly don't become secure or insecure by ourselves. And so all of this is done interpersonally with uh, another another person upon whom we feel we depend. And that is why it's a practice. That is why both people have to be on board uh, with the same idea, because two people can achieve this. One person can't. Right? And, so, uh, and so I know that if my partner suffers, I suffer. I know that if I do something to hurt my partner, I will be hurt uh, as well. Um, I know that anything I do that affects my partner is going to affect me very soon, if not immediately, and she knows the same. We are intertwined, not fused, not merged. We are interdependent. We move in lockstep, and we're, it's as if uh, we're, our legs are bolted together, and we would have to move together in order to uh, be effective, right? Yeah. We share a nervous system in some ways. That's That's biology. And ignoring that actually causes our own suffering. So most of what we do to hurt our partner is self-inflicted, is self-harming. We just don't realize it. We just don't. Right. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, Dan. Because it can be like in our bodies, like what happened with you the other night and what has happened to me with Charlie. It can be in my body, like this, like really wanting to push away. Mm-hmm. When that's the last thing I need. It's so destructive of my own self to push away from Charlie when I actually need care. Yeah. And so it's really like moving myself, like being self-aware of that, just like you reaching out for Tracy's hand. So similarly, Stan, of like me actually, and I had to do this recently too, feeling all of the feelings in my body. And most of them were fear for me in that moment. And then like, Charlie is like literally holding his arms out towards me, beckoning me. And I just still wanted to push away, you know, like, you know, that was what I wanted to do. And I knew like the, like with you, Rebecca, in that example, you shared about your husband biting his lip. I knew if I pushed away, it was not in the best interest of me or Charlie or our marriage. Oh, and, but most importantly, I needed care. So I moved Mm -hmm. towards him and I tell you what, it was a similar thing as what Stan said. Once I took that first step towards him, my body felt better. And then when I was in, it was a shift. And then when I was in his arms, my whole body relaxed. I started to cry. I was like getting the care that my body needed like there was a part of me that was like, no. And it was like, it, pro- it comes back to attachment theory. I can't depend on this. I need to push away, you know? And, and, and it was like really practicing all of the things yeah. I know in my head, but like doing, doing, putting it into practice, putting it into practice. Yeah. And it's like right there. And that's such an intimate moment. So intimate. You know? I, I'm thinking of a teaching that I've learned. I, I study a lot under Terry Real, who wrote the forward to your book. And um, he's a good friend of ours. Yeah. And he t- talks a lot about kind of getting off the train of contempt, how contempt, yeah. whether it's moving outward towards someone else, your partner or whoever, or it's in towards yourself, like in a form of shame, either way, it's toxic. It doesn't, it, it's, and when we live inside of that, right. And I think in many ways, 
in all of these examples we're sharing, that's kind of what we're talking about when we're living inside of that space, how damaging it is. And when we can shift the energy there, and I like to think it's about shifting it towards compassion, right? Compassion outward, compassion inward, that that, that is really the that's the counter to it. That's the thing that moves us into more security, more health, more relationality. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, the first thing uh, always at the top of the list is to reduce threat. Yeah. You cannot do these other things if, uh, if partners are feeling threatened. If they're feeling threatened, uh, uh, this is what people will do. They right. will begin to amplify threat. They will begin to accrue memory of unfairness and resentment that will begin to take up all the space if they don't trust each other they won't be able to influence each other if they can't influence each other they can't change anything uh, they're becoming adversaries they're becoming dangerous characters to each other and that will kill all goodwill that will kill any uh, uh, effort to do something that is loving and unfortunately what happens with most couples is they begin to slowly withdraw all the good. So not only are we left with terrible things, but anything that is good and worthwhile has now been withdrawn. And now there's no leverage. There's nothing to play on the board. There's no, uh, we have nothing to lose at this point, except the attachment system, which is, like I said, uh, mighty, right? It's, it's a biological, uh, you know, uh, inheritance of our species. And so uh, I can't quit you. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be happy. And so we have to deal with threat reduction and people have to learn how to reduce threat, how to work together as two separate individuals who are irritating, annoying, disappointing, uh, impulsive, unreliable, uh, moody and fickle and selfish and self-centered. That's who we are. Now let's deal with it and let's learn how to play together um, in a way that is friendly and actually work together to get things accomplished and to create things, not staying in the mud where we are always at war. The war is in the foxhole, which is, of course, sad because the war isn't in the foxhole. It's out there. And that brings me to if we're reducing the threat and we have this new baby, this baby bomb has gone off, right? And our systems are unconsciously perhaps noticing all of the things that go along with having a new baby as the threat, right? And maybe we're living through a pandemic and we have less people we can rely on outside of ourselves, outside of our family. It means that we really have to be in this foxhole together. We really have to have each other's back. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And most, and most people who are in, uh, in imminent danger know this. We, of course, have not been in imminent danger. We have unseen fear and looming danger, global warming, maybe a, a, an oncoming civil war. All of these things are not happening right now. And we think we have the luxury to create fires at home. But uh, this, uh, this is not reality. Reality is that we live in a dangerous world. We live in a world that is indifferent to us, that is opportunistic, and that is unkind. Life is unkind. The two of us can make an agreement that in our world, in our bubble, in our fiefdom, we do, uh, we, we are completely loyal to each other, have each other's backs. We know each other better than we know anything else. We're experts on each other. We do that because that's the world we want to create, even though we're in a world of madness. So when I hear you say that, I'm coming back to what Kara said earlier when I was asking the question about feelings and Kara brought us back to how the intention here brings us right into that heart and belly space, right? And, and there's that, that grounding that happens mm -hmm. there. There's like a reset button and mm -hmm. this, is, this is what we want to co-create mm -hmm. in these principles. Right. right. And so... Rebecca, like you said, introducing a baby to the mix does up the stress. It ups the ante. So it, it does up the opportunities for misattunement between partners for all sorts of stuff, mm -hmm. pain, 
remembered trauma in the body to be brought up witnessing a baby being born and a toddler growing up. And, you know, again, this falls under that umbrella, but nobody talks about it, how becoming a parent can trigger memories. And it does. And that's real. And that's why we wrote baby bomb to be so it's short, it's pithy. There's no wasted words. We know your resources are limited as new parents. And we started with a, like a couple agreement, like considering you and your partner, considering creating a different culture, right? Like just consider that as an idea, as a shared vision, as a new culture. And we introduced some things of inspiration points for our couples to explore together different ideas. Like, what would that be for the two of you? I mean, it's great if expecting couples are reading this before they have babies. Um, that's That would be incredible. I don't know how often that happens. It might happen and, more once the suffering hits. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we wrote it within the expecting parents or like Elise said yesterday, want to be parents like in mind. And there's like a whole chapter on like ex- the expecting journey. But it might happen in real life when the suffering happens. And like your, your way out of the suffering, it starts with a conversation, an inclusive conversation of both partners, shared power, considering maybe we try something else. And here are some jumping off points about having a conversation about like our couple agreement. That's like literally like the beginning of it is that conversation. And it's a living, breathing agreement that we practice every day. We're revising and editing every day and talking about it and having this like renegotiation that does provide like comfort in my body and Charlie's body. And I know in my son's body because he knows what our couple agreement is to each other. And he, he relies on us to live on to that couple agreement. And it's very containing for him as it's containing for Charlie and I. Because it is the something bigger that we have invested in and believe in and provides us with, um, yeah, like I said, the North Star, our path forward. And, and I guess I wanted to say one other thing about like, and when it is agreement, it's not personal. It's like we have an agreement that we care for each other. I mean, this is like just one of our agreements. I agree to care for Charlie. And I also agree to receive his care. It goes both ways. And, and so when I, I can be a handful and when like it, and I can be read and it can be easier for me to offer care and more difficult for me to receive care. Charlie can easily pull back our agreement and say, Kara, we agreed to care for each other. And I'm, I'm, I want to care for you right now. You need my care. And that calling to the agreement can re like set me and be like, Oh, that's what's happening. Oh, thank you. Let me read a beautiful illustration, Kara. You yeah. know, like, let me, like, let me practice. Let me, re- you know, one of my mantras is let me receive this care joyfully. Re- receive this care gratefully. Okay. And then, you know, and that's, that's just calling to an agreement we had. And mm-hmm. that makes it really um, easy, fast, quick to navigate. It's not like an ongoing thing. It's a quick like coming back together. And like in early parenthood, let's face it. That's all you have are these moments. You don't have this time for this long dialogue about things. That's why we guide people in Baby Bomb how to make these agreements and then how to help hold each other and themselves to the agreements on a day-to-day basis. I mean, this is an ongoing practice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's beautiful about that is there is this framework that you lay out for us that you talk about, about, well, what might these agreements look like? Here are some examples, but also like you got to sit down and make these because they become the container that holds you later. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're thinking yeah. ahead. We're thinking ahead. We're not so naive as to think that love or any feeling will will out. We're moving through time, bodies changing, ideas changing, moving uh, through changing times. But we're uh, a constant. We hold to the same principles that support life, 
for us and that ensure that we stay in good stead throughout troubled times. We're able to deal with the vicissitudes of life together because we've set up the architecture that way. And as you said, um, uh, this is what actually thinking ahead and, cre and, and creating these principles is what provides us safety and security and trust and actually good feelings. You know, notice that, that Kara is talking about deeds that they do for each other. So many couples that I hear when I ask, well, what's so good about your relationship? Uh, most will say, well, you know, there, there are times we really enjoyed each other. We had really good time. We had, you know, we had fun. But there are no, no statements of what we actually did for each other, mm -hmm. right? And, and, uh, and that's, that's what's memorable and that's what's irreplaceable are the things we do for each other day in and day out that serve one another in a way that the world and maybe our parents never did. The ways we have each other's back. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That feels like a really beautiful place for us to land today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to thank you both for, for joining me and for sharing this conversation with our listeners. And I'd like to ask both of you to share anything that you have coming up that you might want our listeners to know about or that they might be interested in. Sure. Um, I, I am going to be teaching virtual couple retreats based on the books. So if you are an expecting couple or in the throes of parenthood at any stage, I mean, like we really want to empower couples to know they can change the script of their book at any time. Mm. So you could be an eight, have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old and it's not working. Baby bomb is like that different paradigm that is like building in principles to make it work, to make it different. So I'm teaching the book to um, expecting couples and parents, and you can find information about that at karahoppy.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, all at Kara Hoppy. Wonderful. And, and to just to drill down that point, the book is really about parents first, the couple first. If the couple is really good, if mm -hmm. the couple is really, if they have their created ethos, their culture, this is how children uh, become happy. And this is how children learn relationships by watching their parents this is uh, for the kids, uh, but uh, but the couple has to be in good good shape, and yeah. Kara's going to teach that. Um, you can reach me at the Pact Institute, P A C T PactInstitute.com, and there you can find trainings. Uh, we do uh, a psychobiological approach trainings to therapists, physicians, psychiatrists all over the world, uh, and we also, my wife and I, who co-founded Pact. We do couple retreats, again, all over the world. We have one coming up in Spain next year at a monastery, if you, uh, if all's good, knock on wood. Uh, but you can find us there, and I'm throughout social media as Dr. Stan Tatkin. Wonderful. I am so grateful to have had this conversation here with you. Um, Stan, I want to thank you for joining us again. You joined thank us you. Um, a few years ago. And Kara, I'm so happy that you joined us today. Um, it is wonderful Thanks for having me. Totally a pleasure. Thank totally you. Totally a pleasure. Me too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Learn more about my counseling practice, intensives, and online workshops over at connectfulness.com. And if you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, Why Does My Partner? Why Does My Partner tackles questions from listeners who want help in relationship. These questions, your questions, send them in, are relationship gold. They echo the conversations that take place over and over again in our therapy offices and take us deep into conversations around the skills that are right at the heart of relationship intimacy, greater health, and fulfillment. Jules, Vicki, and I also offer essential skills relationship boot camps. You can learn more about those at Why Does My Partner? Com. We'd love to have you join us. We have a few coming up, one in November of 2021 and another in February of 2022. You can listen to this podcast wherever you get your audio. We'd love if you follow and subscribe to the show, share it with those who may also be interested. 
I want to express my deepest gratitude to the musicians behind the beautiful soundtrack for this podcast, Sarah and Chris Ferris, who recorded and mixed this music at Kidney Stone Studio, and to Little Green Art House, who tends to all of our post-production needs. Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners. It's such a pleasure to be on this journey with you. This podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and it's copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling. And we'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram over at Connectfulness. Take care and be well. Until next time. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events.